0: Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can say with all our hearts that the wounds of Christ have paid our ransom. Lord, we can say that not not because of anything in us that would merit what you've done for us. Um, Lord, we can only say that because your word declares to us that that is what has happened. Our Lord Jesus Through his death has paid the ransom in full. Lord, we, because of our sins, deserved hell, deserved to experience your wrath forever. But our Lord Jesus came and he paid our debt. He absorbed your wrath upon himself. Lord, you sent him to do that. By your grace, you made provision through your son to redeem us and to save us, to make us clean and free and to make us fit to dwell in your presence forever clothed with the robe of righteousness um, that our Lord Jesus purchased for us by his righteous life Lord we thank you for what he has accomplished help us never to grow weary of hearing of the gospel Lord help us to always be pressing in deeper and deeper Lord your gospel is So simple a child can understand it, and yet it's so deep that we will not ever reach the depths of the mysteries that are contained there, that you, the holy God, would have mercy on sinners like us, Lord. Help us never to stop um, mining the gold that we find in your word that tells us about our Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, We're not in 1 Corinthians this morning. Um, Today, I thought it would be a good um, opportunity to press further into the gospel, to meditate on the gospel itself, uh, because today is a special day in the history of the church. And I'm not talking about Halloween. I'm talking about Reformation Day, 504 years ago on October 31st. 1517, a German man who was a friar and a professor named Martin Luther, he nailed a document to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And nailing a document to that castle door, that church door, was the usual way of going public with information, with inviting debate or discussion. And this document that Luther nailed. To that door is what is popularly known as Luther's 95 Theses. It was 95 statements meant to criticize the sale of indulgences. And an indulgence was a certificate of God's pardon that would be given to an individual who bought it. And that sale was going on and it was having a damaging effect upon Luther's congregation. So it was with a pastoral heart that he wrote these 95 theses. A man named Johann Tetzel was selling these indulgences in order to raise money for an an ornate church building called St. Peter's Basilica. And it's a church today in the Vatican City in Rome. And Tetzel, who was selling these things, was promising people that if they purchased one of these certificates... God would respond by releasing a soul of one of their dead loved ones from purgatory so you could buy their way into heaven, basically. And these 95 theses against this practice that Luther wrote let loose a tidal wave of controversy that would just flood the whole Roman Catholic Church and it would result in many people leaving Rome in protest over Rome's Errors, their false doctrines. Hence the name Protestant. We protest against the false gospel preached by the Roman Catholic Church. And here in New Woodstock, we are a Protestant church. We're not a Roman Catholic church. We're not an Eastern Orthodox church. We are a Protestant church. And when Luther nailed those documents to that church door, he was not intending to blow up the roman catholic church and he wasn't even trying to invent some new kind of christianity instead he wanted to reform the church that he was a part of to bring it back to faithfulness to the gospel back to dependence on the scriptures he was trying to reform it that's why we call men like luther and his friend philip melanchthon and guys like Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin, reformers. And there were five main truths that Luther and men like him were risking their lives to see restored in the church. And these five truths are often called the five solas. Sola is Latin for alone. The five solas of the Christian faith, they were five slogans or declarations or summary truths that the reformers were proclaiming, seeking to bring back to the consciousness of the church. And the great conflict, sorry for my phlegmy throat, hopefully it's not too distracting, the great conflict between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant reformers was over these five points. And today we're going to examine what Rome had to say. Because I'm not a Roman Catholic theologian. I want you to hear it from the horse's mouth. I don't want to put words in their mouths and misrepresent them. I want you to hear it for yourself. All right, so we're going to look at different things Rome says. We're going to look at what the Reformers said and then we'll compare what they said to what Scripture says to see who's right. And there's three official documents of the roman catholic church that outline for us rome's doctrinal positions on certain things one of these documents is called the council of trent this was a council that was called by the roman catholic church about maybe 30 years after luther nailed those theses to that door it took place in the city of trent in northern italy the second document we will be hearing from is the Second Vatican Council, or Vatican II. That was much more recent. That was begun on October 11th, 1962. And the third document we will draw statements from is the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Catechism is just a teaching tool to tell you what we believe. And that was published in '92. As for what the Reformers said, we'll just be looking at one document. Then there's many we could choose from, but we'll look at the Belgic Confession. That was published in 1561. And that was published during a time of severe persecution of Protestant Reformers by the Roman Catholic Church. They were getting killed by Rome, and so they made this confession to say, Hey, stop killing us we're just confessing what the church has always confessed from the apostles till today. It's a good representation of what the reformers believed and confessed. Thank you for whoever magically put this water on the pulpit here. (laughs) So what's the first sola that we'll look at? It's sola scriptura. What does that mean? It means scripture alone. That's what the reformers were declaring. Scripture alone. What did they mean by that? Well, the first point of contention between the Reformers and between Rome was over who and what had supreme authority in the church. And the Reformers said, Scripture alone. That's what they said. Now, let's examine what Rome says. I mentioned the Second Vatican Council. That implies there was a First Vatican Council. And that first Vatican Council declared that the Pope, whenever he is speaking ex cathedra, or meaning whenever he is speaking in his official capacity as Pope and he's declaring something to the church, whenever he makes those kinds of declarations, this Council said that the Pope is infallible, incapable of error. And the second Vatican Council doubled down on that belief By saying this, the the Second Vatican Council, it's broken up into different sections, each with a fancy Latin heading, so don't get thrown off when I start speaking Latin. This section is called Lumen Gentium, and this section says this, quote, The Pope's power of primacy over all, both pastors and faithful, remains whole and intact. In virtue of his office, that is, as vicar of Christ and pastor of the whole church, the Roman pontiff, that is, the pope, has full, supreme, and universal power over the church, and he is always free to exercise this power, unquote. A little later, under that same section, it says, quote, this religious submission of mind and will, speaking to the Catholic Church, You need to submit to the Pope. This submission must be shown in a special way to the authentic magisterium of the Roman pontiff, that's the Pope, even when he is not speaking ex cathedra. That is, this submission must be shown in such a way that his supreme magisterium is acknowledged with reverence. The judgments made by him are sincerely adhered to according to his manifest mind and will. So the Catholic Church views the Pope as having the same authority as the apostles and the prophets. When the Pope declares something in his official capacity, we are told that what he says is gospel truth. Now, of course, Rome says that, yes, the scriptures are also the authority in the church, but when you give a man or a tradition or a document equal standing with the scriptures, What tends to get thrust to the side? It always happens to be the scriptures, never the man or the tradition. Scriptures are what get overruled and overlooked. So that's what Rome says about the authority in the church. What did the reformers say? Listen to the Belgic Confession under Article 7. Quote, We believe that this holy scripture contains the will of God completely, and that everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. For since the entire manner of service which God requires of us is described in it at great length, no one, even an apostle or an angel from heaven, as Paul says, no one ought to teach other than what the holy scriptures have already taught us. For since it is forbidden to add to the word of God or take anything away from it, it is plainly demonstrated that the teaching is perfect and complete in all respects. Therefore, we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to the divine writings. Nor may we put custom, nor the majority, nor age, nor the passage of times or persons, nor councils, decrees, or official decisions above the truth of God, for truth is above everything else. Unquote. So the reformers declare that Scripture alone has the ultimate authority in the life of the believer, because it alone is the inerrant, infallible, all sufficient Word of God. Now, who's right? Which of these two is right? We need to be like the citizens of Berea, don't we? When Paul came in Acts 17, he came to the city of Berea preaching the gospel. And what does it say about the Bereans when they heard him preaching? Verse 11 says, They were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And that's what we need to do. And that's what you need to do when you hear anything from this pulpit. You need to do that as well. So let's go to the Scriptures. What do they say? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16-17 to 17 says this. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That tells us that in the scriptures, we have everything we need to live a life of faith and godliness. We don't need a pope filling us in on some information that we critically need in order to follow Christ. No, we have it all in the word of God. And there's warnings, as the reformers mentioned, against adding to this word. For example, if you look at Revelation 22. Revelation 22, verses 18 to 19. says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. And then lastly, I'll read from Proverbs chapter 30, verse 6. You don't need to turn there. But Proverbs 30, verse 6 says, Do not Add to his words, or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. The authors of these Roman Catholic councils and the popes, when they are speaking, they are binding the consciences of their people to their words over against Scripture. They are adding to the word of God, and God's word says that they are liars. And they have placed themselves underneath God's judgment. So we must not follow them. So that's the first sola. Sola Scriptura. The second truth that was a major bone of contention that the Reformers had with Rome was regarding how a man was accepted by God. How he was justified before God. And that second sola that the Reformers declared was sola fide. In other words, faith alone is how we're justified before God. Faith alone. But Rome's understanding of justification is very different from the Reformers. The Reformers say that justification is forgiving sins and declaring the believer to be righteous in his sight solely upon the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. And this justification is is totally separate from a person's works. It does not depend on the believer's works at all. It is entirely dependent on Christ's work and it is received through faith alone. That was the Reformed understanding of justification. But Rome says differently. Rome says that yes, justification is God forgiving you of your sins, but it is also... And this is key. It is also God enabling you to do good works so that you will become conformed to his righteousness. So in other words, under the Roman Catholic system, the more good works you do, the more justified you become. And the more you sin, the less justified you become. And you can actually sin your way out of being justified before God entirely, in which case you have to do good works in order to regain your justification, your right standing before God. You see how it mixes in your works in order to be made right with God. The Catholic Catechism in line 1989, quoting actually from the Council of Trent, it says this, quote, Justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. Unquote. You see how in Roman Catholicism they fold sanctification into justification. So if you sin today, that has a big effect on your standing before God in the Roman Catholic system. That catechism goes on in line 1992. It says, quote, justification conforms us to the righteousness of God and makes us inwardly just by the power of his mercy, unquote. So according to Rome, justification is not a legal declaration. It is an enablement to conform yourself to God so you can make it to heaven. That's what it is. And the Council of Trent which was largely a response against Protestantism, the Council of Trent actually pronounces a curse upon anyone who believes that a right standing with God comes only through faith. In Canon 12 of that council's sixth session, it says, quote, If anyone saith that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy which remits sins for Christ's sake, or if they say that this confidence alone is that whereby we are justified, let him be anathema, or cursed. For Rome, salvation comes through faith plus works. That's how you're justified. Now, this was a big deal to the Reformers, and it really got Martin Luther fired up. Luther said... That this doctrine of justification is the doctrine by which the church would stand or fall. It was critical. Listen to the Belgic Confession. Listen to what the Reformers say in Article 23. Quote, We believe that our blessedness lies in the forgiveness of our sins because of Jesus Christ and that in it our righteousness before God is contained as David and Paul teach us when they declare those people blessed to whom God grants righteousness apart from works. And the same apostle says that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And therefore, we cling to this foundation, which is firm forever, giving all glory to God, humbling ourselves and recognizing ourselves as we are, not claiming a thing for ourselves, or our merits, and leaning and resting on the sole obedience of Christ crucified, which is ours when we believe in him. So again, who's right? We desperately need to know which of these two, if any of these two, are right. Rome and the Reformers had two totally different understandings of the gospel. And there's only one gospel that saves. They cannot be Both right. Paul in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, he's tearing his hair out over this issue of justification. Listen to what he says. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I'll give you a second to turn there. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who calls you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. In other words, if you get the gospel wrong and you tell others about that wrong gospel, you will end up in hell if you don't repent. Rome says you are justified by faith in Christ plus works. The Reformers said you are justified by faith alone in Christ apart from works. So again, who is right? Well, turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Romans 3, verse 28. Thankfully, the scriptures are crystal clear on this. There's no need to guess or wonder or hesitate between two opinions. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3 verse 28. He says, "For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law." According to scripture, to be justified is to be declared righteous by God. It's a legal declaration. That's what justification is. And it's only through faith, faith alone. And if you're still wondering, read Romans 4, where it spent, Paul spends the whole chapter talking about the fact that we are justified through faith alone, nothing else. Justification is a gift to be received. It's not wages to be earned. You cannot earn a right standing before God. Jesus earned it for you. You receive a right standing before God when you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But Rome teaches a different gospel that leads people to hell. So sola fide, faith alone, faith alone. The third truth that we will look at regards the role that God's grace plays in our salvation. And this third slogan declaration that the reformers proclaimed was sola gratia, or grace alone, grace alone. First, what does Rome say? Rome teaches that yes, God's grace is necessary for salvation, but we run into a similar problem as the one we ran into talking about faith. Rome says that man's effort also needs to be involved in order for him to be saved. So for Rome, it's grace plus your effort, not grace alone. Back to Vatican II, in the section titled Gaudium et Spes, we find this statement. Quote, Man achieves such dignity when emancipating himself from all captivity to passion, He pursues his goal in a spontaneous choice of what is good and procures for himself through effective and skillful action. Apt helps to that end. Since man's freedom has been damaged by sin, only by the aid of God's grace can he bring such a relationship with God into full flower. Catch that phrase. By the aid of God's grace can he bring such a relationship with God into full flower. Before the judgment seat of God, each man must render an account of his own life, whether he has done good or evil. Unquote. According to Rome, Adam's fall into sin has only damaged mankind. Man needs God's aid for man to bring into full flower his, his reconciliation to God. The Council of Trent puts it this way in session 6, chapter 5, quote, "...so they who by sins were alienated from God may be disposed through his quickening and assisting grace to convert themselves to their own justification by freely assenting to and cooperating with that said grace." In such sort that while God touches the heart of man by the illumination of the Holy Ghost, neither is man himself utterly without doing anything while he receives that inspiration for as much as he is also able to reject it. Yet he is not able, by his own free will, without the grace of God, to move himself unto justice in his sight. Then the Roman Catholic Catechism says this in line 30. Quote, although man can forget God or reject him, God never ceases to call every man to seek him so as to find life and happiness. But this search for God demands of man every effort of intellect, a sound will, an upright heart, as well as the witness of others who teach him to seek God, Unquote. An upright heart. And in line 405, it says, quote, Original sin, Adam's fall, is a deprivation of original holiness and justice. But human nature has not been totally corrupted. It is wounded and the natural powers proper to it, subject to ignorance, suffering, and the dominion of death, and inclined to sin, unquote. So Rome says, yes, sin did damage but we're still able to work together with God to arrive at our own justification and the experience of his grace. Rome seems to teach that man is only half dead in his sin. He needs a little bit of help. He needs a little bit of grace in order to get himself to where God will accept him. That's what Rome says. What did the Reformers say? Article 14 of the Belgic Confession. Quote, or speaking of Adam and Eve, quote, So they made themselves guilty and subject to physical and spiritual death, having become wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all their ways. They lost all their excellent gifts which they had received from God and retained none of them except for small traces which are enough to make them inexcusable. Moreover, all the light in us is turned to darkness, as the scriptures teach us. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Here, John calls the human race darkness. Therefore, we reject everything taught to the contrary concerning human free will, since humans are nothing but the slaves of sin and cannot do a thing unless it is given them from heaven." In Article 15, quote, We believe that by the disobedience of Adam, original sin has been spread through the whole human race. It is a corruption of the whole human nature, an inherited depravity which even infects small infants in their mother's womb, and the root which produces in humanity every sort of sin. It is therefore so vile and enormous in God's sight. That it is enough to condemn the human race, and it is not abolished or wholly uprooted even by baptism, seeing that sin constantly boils forth as though from a contaminated spring. Unquote. That's quite a different tone than what you read in the Roman Catholic documents. Reformers said that man is completely dead in his sin. And so the grace of God is needed not just to prepare us or to act as a crutch for us, to aid us in getting right with God, but instead, according to the reformers, the grace of God is needed to fully accomplish the totality of our salvation, every step of it. God's choosing of us is by his grace. His calling us is by his grace. His Regenerating us is by his grace. Our conversion, that is, our repenting and believing, is by his grace. Our perseverance is by his grace. Our glorification is by his grace. In Rome's eyes, the unbeliever is a man in the ocean struggling to keep his head above the water. And the grace of God is someone from the boat throwing a flotation device attached to a rope out to him. And then the man must swim to the device, hold on to it, and then the man must drag himself back to the boat and up into the boat by that rope. That's how Rome sees it. But in the reformer's eyes, the unbeliever is lying dead on the bottom of the ocean, half eaten by the sharks. And the grace of God is a submarine going down to the bottom, picking up, that dead and decayed man and raising him from the dead and breathing new life into him. That's the reformer view. So which one's right? Which one is right? Boy, I hope the second one's right. Let's, uh, if you want to write down, I won't read all of these, but John chapter 6, verse 45 and 65. We hear, Our Lord Jesus, what he says about it. But I will read from Romans 3, Romans 3, verses 9 through 18, where Paul speaks of our position as sinners. And you can decide are we half dead or are we all the way dead as unbelievers? Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then if you want to write down Romans 8, verses 5 through 8, you can read that one on your own time. But then I'll read from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Listen to what Paul says in verse 1. He's writing to believers, reminding them of their state before they knew Christ. He says, And you were dead whatsoever to seek God or to be made right with God. In fact, his very nature is to go and, 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 and con- continue in his rebellion to the point of experiencing the wrath of God. He is a child of wrath. That's his nature. But then we come to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. You see there, there's only two categories, either dead in sin or alive in Christ. There is no in-between where God helps get you sitting up by his grace, gets you to a point where you can say, all right, now I'm in a position I can choose God or to choose to reject him. There is no in-between state. You're dead in sin until God, by his mercy, breathes life into you and makes you alive with Christ and grants you repentance and faith. There is no in-between where I start seeking God, God gives me a little bit of grace, and then, because of my own wisdom, I say, you know what? I think I'll follow Jesus. No. There is no in between. It's either dead or alive. And if alive, if you've repented and believed in the Lord Jesus, you can only owe that to the grace of God who brought you to life. Verse five says, by grace, you have been saved. What else did God do the moment he saved us? He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. To me, it sounds like the Reformers got it right, doesn't it? What about this fourth sola, solus Christus, only Christ? Where did Rome and the Reformers stand on the person of Christ? Well, actually, there's a lot of agreement between Rome and the Reformers when it came to the person of Christ. They both agreed on the Son of God being in the Trinity. As stated in the Nicene Creed, they both agreed on the fact that as the incarnate Son of God, Jesus is one person with two natures, being truly God and truly man, as stated in the Chalcedonian Creed. What they did not agree on was how we are able to partake of the benefits of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. How do I get what Jesus did applied to me? Did Jesus do everything necessary? Or are there other things I need to do to ascend into heaven and to bring Christ down to myself? What does Rome say about it? Well, let me set this up by reminding you of Matthew 27, verse 51. Remember what it says there about what happened when Jesus gave up his last breath on the cross. It says that when he died, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that the way into the presence of God has been made open to us, that through Jesus we have direct access to the presence of our Heavenly Father. However, what the Roman Catholic Church does is to sew that veil back together, to hang it back up, and to hang up several more veils for good measure. Let me show you why I say that. In Roman Catholicism, there are things that you need to do in order to become more and more justified on your way, hopefully, to heaven. There are things you need to do to become more and more right in the eyes of God things you need to do to get what Christ did applied to yourself. And these things are called sacraments, and there are seven of them. According to Rome, you cannot experience the grace of God until you are baptized. And once baptized, you are then, through that act of baptism, born again, and your sins are washed away. Secondly, you need the sacrament of confirmation where you are anointed with oil and through that anointing you receive the Holy Spirit sealed in Christ. Thirdly, again, this is all according to Rome. This is not, if you're saying, I don't remember that in the Bible, good, because it's not in there. Thirdly, you need the sacrament of the Eucharist where Jesus is repeatedly in a bloodless manner sacrificed over and over and over again. As the bread and the wine are said to literally transform into the literal body and blood of Christ, which you then eat, so that Christ's work on the cross can be applied to you. And you need that repeatedly because you sin repeatedly, according to Rome. Fourthly, you need to perform the sacrament of penance. That's different from repentance. Penance. You need to perform the sacrament in order to obtain pardon for your daily sins. So when you sin, you need to go to your priest. You need to confess your sins to your priest. And your priest will assign you a duty to perform so that you can get pardon for your sin. He might say, say, ten our fathers. And once you do that, what Christ did will be released and you can experience his grace. You can experience his atonement, and the priest will pronounce your pardon. He might ask you to fast, he might ask you to pay alms. The fifth sacrament is the anointing of the sick. The sixth sacrament is the sacrament of the holy orders, where you become or you enter into the priestly ministry, and the seventh sacrament is matrimony or marriage. Now listen to what the Council of Trent says about these sacraments. The seventh session of the Council of Trent says that through these sacraments, your justification, quote, either begins or being begun is increased or being lost is repaired. You need to do these sacraments because you won't get justified. You won't experience the grace that Christ came To cause you to experience, unless you do these sacraments. And you know, as you sin, you become less justified. And don't worry, these sacraments are here to get you back to the level you need to be back at. And if you lose it, take heart. There's these sacraments you can do to get what Christ has done applied to you yet again. And if you are unable to maintain your justification to an adequate level, these sacraments will not be enough. You will need. After you die, you will need to endure the fires of purgatory to receive further cleansing before you can enter into heaven. What does that tell you about Christ? If you believe this, how much value do you place on what the Lord Jesus did on the cross? It doesn't seem that it accomplished very much, does it? Because you are in a constant battle to maintain your own righteous standing before God. For someone who truly believes in everything Rome teaches, there can never be true assurance of salvation. And if someone's in the church and they think they are doing well, they think they are justified by God, it shows that they have an incredibly low view of God's holiness, to think that they are attaining that for themselves. That's what Rome says. What did the reformers say? Listen to Article 21 of the Belgic Confession. Quote, We find all comforts in Christ's wounds and have no need to seek or invent any other means to reconcile ourselves with God than this one and only sacrifice once made which renders believers perfect forever. This is also why the angel of God uh, the angel of god called him jesus that is savior because he would save his people from their sins unquote. now again who's right what do the scriptures say there's so many scriptures we could go to but i just want to go to hebrews chapter 10 turn with me to hebrews chapter 10 I'm reading from verse 11. Hebrews 10, verse 11 says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering, time after time, the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now, the preacher writing this, he's speaking of the Levitical priests under the old covenant. But it sounds an awful lot like who? The priest's of the Roman Catholic Church. They're offering the Eucharist, the same sacrifice over and over and over, and it never seems to actually take away your sins. Verse 12, But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified under rome you are never perfect you are never at that right standing with god fully and completely and finally you're always on a yo-yo string up and down and you never quite get there but this the bible says in christ you're there because he's there Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. But in the Roman Catholic Church, you are constantly being reminded of your sin over and over and over again. And you're told that God is constantly being reminded of your sin because you're constantly needing to atone for your own sin over and over again. If you are trusting in Christ this morning as your Lord and Savior, God does not and he never will bring to his remembrance even one of your sins. You are forever clean and forgiven in his sight. And your righteous standing before him is perfect and unwavering because Jesus is perfect and unwavering. And it is Christ's robe of righteousness that you are wearing. And that robe never grows threadbare. Jesus is the anchor for your soul. He is the ground of your assurance, nothing else. No sacrament, no priest, no good work, only Jesus, solus Christus. That brings us to the fifth and final sola, soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. In the Roman Catholic Church, God has to share his glory. Of course, Rome never comes out and says that, but it cannot be any other way than that. Listen to how Vatican II calls Mary, calls her the queen of the universe, calls her advocate, calls her mediatrix, which is a feminine term for mediator. And then after it speaks of her in these exalted terms, that Council says this, quote, This, however, is to be so understood that it neither takes away from nor adds anything to the dignity and efficaciousness of Christ, the one mediator. I'm sorry, but there is no way to understand Mary in those exalted terms and not rob Christ of his glory. And I guarantee that if Mary could hear the way they speak of her, she would roll in her grave. Vatican II calls the Pope his holiness, the visible head of the whole church. And in a religion where so much of your salvation depends upon you, you cannot help but steal glory from God. To the Reformers, this last truth, glory to God alone, that God alone deserves all the glory in our salvation. That is the inevitable conclusion that one is forced to accept if he accepts the first four truths. If the word of God is your ultimate authority, if you are saved not by your good works, but only through faith alone, if you're not saved because you deserve it, but purely because God chose to lavish his grace on you, If you are not saved by anything you've done, but only by what Jesus has done, then you must conclude that there is no glory left over for you or any other creature. Only God deserves the glory. And we read earlier from Ephesians 1, speaking of our salvation three times, Paul says this is to the praise of his glory. The Roman Catholic Church robs God of his glory. But by the grace of God, 500 years ago, God took back his glory. And may he do so again today. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to your church. That you always keep a remnant, Lord. You always keep the gospel. You preserve it. You preserve your word. Even when the vast majority are trying to dispense with your word, trying to distort the gospel, you always keep it. Lord, you always preserve it, and we thank you that it has been handed down to us, untouched, even today, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.